Welcome to another episode of Weekly Regular. My name is Asan. I am uh, here today. Again, uh, we want to send out positive vibes uh, and our thoughts to Brandon as he's hanging out with his family, um, captaining that ship with his wife. Um, yeah, we miss you, Brandon, uh, but I'd also like to shout out Brad, um, uh, Alex in Jersey. I'd like to shout out Brad's brother, Trey, his wife, Christy, their sons, Hart and Knox, um, her best friend, Caitlin, Steven, and everyone else at the uh, Foothill Tattoo family. Uh, if you need a tattoo and you're in the Inland, Inland Empire or in Southern California anywhere, go to Foothill Tattoo. Um, yeah, so I am here joined um, for another episode by a good friend, now good friend of the show, um, He's been here a couple times now helping me um, talk about all the things that I that Brandon won't put up with talking about when he's on the show. <laughs> uh, he's a very smart, intelligent guy. He's a uh, very accomplished drummer and skateboarder. Uh, and most importantly, uh, he is a philosophy professor and an all-around great guy. Uh, philosophy Drew, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for the uh, kind words and extended intro. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> I'm glad I got upgraded to the good friends of the show. That's uh, yeah. That's kind of good. All it takes is three consecutive visits, and then you're a good friend of the show. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So um, uh, I was going to have – it's funny. I don't want you to feel like you're getting uh, – uh, you're playing second fiddle here, but I actually had another guest lined up for this week, um, but it was going to be more of a, a typical episode of Weekly Regular, more comedy-based and, and more fun and shenanigans. But um, – uh, in light of some things that are going on uh, in the news and sort of like where we're at social climate wise, I just thought it'd be wise to have you back on to talk about some of the stuff that I don't really want to make jokes about. Okay. Um, but I feel like we can have a good, thoughtful dialogue and sort of, um, yeah, just have a meeting of the minds about um, some things that are going on. Um, I guess we could start. Um, Let's start. Let's start in Minneapolis, and then I kind of want to gauge where you are with that, and kind of if you have any thoughts on the situation, um, and and we can kind of go from there. I've been just to sort of recap for anyone who doesn't know. I, I doubt that there's anyone who doesn't know, but um, a man named George Floyd was um, in police custody for uh, allegedly uh, suspicion of writing a fraudulent check, uh, and one thing led to another. The video that we saw. Um, he was already in custody, handcuffed and, uh, under the knee of a Minnesota PD police officer or Minneapolis PD police officer, uh, with several other officers standing around, um, the officer's knees on the back of his neck. He's moaning and groaning and saying, I can't breathe, um, pleading for the officer to get on off of him. The officer does not acknowledge the, uh, the cries for help uh, until George Floyd, uh, goes unconscious uh, and then a few minutes later, um, uh, ambulance and paramedics show up and he's taken to the hospital and he is pronounced dead at the hospital. Uh, in response to this, um, there was a a sort of a nationwide outcry from people who were sympathetic to George Floyd, um, people who are sympathetic to um, poli uh, police brutality against um, uh, non-white people. And this has sparked a lot of outrage with specifically within the, the Minneapolis community. And over the last couple of days, there's been um, both uh, peaceful, quote unquote, peaceful protests, as well as uh, 
more violent protests, destructive protests, um, and some rioting and looting and burning of buildings, destruction of property. Um, there was a target that was completely gutted and, and then burned. Cop cars left and right are getting smashed um, by the masses. And just a, a really chaotic and angry situation um, going on in Minneapolis. And on the internet, it's uh, it's almost worse on the internet um, with the amount of vitriol and and opinions being shared and thrown around and lob and lobbed and back and forth and things like that. But so Drew, uh, where where do you sit on all this? Where were you when you first saw the video and what was your reaction to it? Um, sort of what, and then we can kind of get into sort of the thoughts about ethics of policing and police brutality and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And we can kind of find the conversation as we have it. But what was your immediate reaction to the, the video and the story and all of that? So this one, admittedly, I've probably followed less than a lot of the other ones. Mm -hmm. And I'd say the reason that I followed it less is that I saw the video and I read, you know, whatever articles and it seemed really obvious. Um, yep. In a lot of other instances, I think there are more interesting facts or stories surrounding it. Um, and usually there's like some kind of obvious struggle mm -hmm. um, in a lot of the, you know, I'm thinking, you know, the, the big headline, um, you know, examples of police brutality um, in recent years. But this one, I, right. I mean, I saw the video and I figured everybody's on the same page. I mm -hmm. was like, uh, I'm not really sure what there is to debate here. Um, the guy's on the ground, very obviously detained. And I don't know if you saw, I think there was a video. I don't, I think it came out today, but there was another angle that was released. Did you see this? So I saw a photo from another angle. I haven't seen a video from another angle, but that, that could be, that could exist for sure. Yeah. And, yes, so, and there were yeah. three police officers actually on right. him. It wasn't just the one guy. Right. Um, I mean, I knew that there were several there, but I don't know if I knew that before. And so, I mean, it only reinforces the fact that there was really no threat going on. Um, right. And I mean, I think it's like a obvious example of a police officer's ego being challenged. Right. Um, I don't really know what else to make of it in, in terms of like why he would have done that because, you know, he's obviously on film. Um, he knew right. he was being filmed. Um, right. there were lots of people there. It was a pretty public thing. Um, and so right. obviously it's ridiculous, but at the same time, um, I mean, I guess now in the past couple days, cause this has been all week in the past couple days, I've been paying more attention to it because I've realized that for whatever reason, there's like a debate about this one or some kind of discussion. Uh, yeah. And that's been confusing yeah. to me. That's been confusing uh -huh. me because it's like very obvious, like, um, you know, police, police officers use force, obviously in plenty of cases. And um, maybe it's justified. We, I mean, we can get in that later, but there's something going on, right? There's some kind of conflict. And in this mm -hmm. case, there is no conflict going on. Um, like, why are you on the guy's neck? Uh, so it just didn't, it was shocking to me that there, there was actually a discussion going on um, in relation to this. So, um, that, um, I mean, th those are my initial reactions, really. Yeah, like, this I think is that's obvious. <laughs> right, right. I do think, I, I do think the the sort of the unit, like not unanimous, but I do think the overall consensus is that it is a pretty obvious case of, at the very least, um, negligent uh, use of force. Let's just call it that. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, so. There's two interesting points. I think the debate, the only really debate, uh, and we'll get into the the aftermath of it in a moment here. But I think in terms of the actual situation, I think the only real, um, let's just say, 
um, broader or sort of more contradictory perspectives I'm seeing or contradictory arguments being made is I think one um, uh, is the idea that and it's this is an ongoing uh, contradictory position that I hear in any time there's a situation like this is that this is you know, it, it, there's debate over whether or not this is a sort of systemic, ongoing issue, larger issue, or if this just is, if this is just an isolated incident of a cop making right. a bad decision and that type of thing. Um, uh, it's sort of the bad apple um, argument, um, and there's that argument. And then uh, Ben Shapiro on his, uh, Ben Shapiro's podcast. Um, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't listened to the episode yet, um, but the title of his episode from uh, Thursday this week um, is, and this is the episode where he talks directly to the incident, uh, the title of the episode is Not Every Terrible Thing is a Racist Thing. And I think that's, um, I'm assuming that that's his sort of his premise for um, whatever argument he's going to make about the situation. But I think that is something that is another argument that's made in situations like these from people who are skeptical of systemic racism is that, you know, this can just be an isolated incident of terrible policing that isn't, that has nothing to do with race. This is an example of racism. It's an example of bad policing, a bad day with a, a bad cop and a, a unlucky situation. Right. Yeah. So what, what are your, what is, what's your immediate reaction to, to those arguments? And then I'll, I'll follow up. Um, so I, well, I think there are like, I think there's actually a third level here. So you said Mm -hmm. there are, there could be systemic racism. There could be, this is an isolated incident. Uh Um, and there could be the question of, um, whether this individual action is also racist. Right. Right. So it's like, um, and so that's, that's the one thing. I mean, I have no idea what Ben Shapiro is talking about on this podcast. Uh, all we have <laughs> right. is the title. Um, but there's something right. that Sam, I've heard Sam Harris say, and I'm very much on board with. The problem, like, like you can sign up for systemic racism. Um, and when I say sign up, I just mean, like, you can, you can ascend to that, like, the fact that this is real. Um, and then you can also say that maybe in this instance, it isn't actually a reflection of that. Like, I think those are two different things and I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that that is the case, but one of the things that Sam Harris talks about is, you know, and I'll, I'll contrast it with, so the other thing that I've been thinking about is the thing that happened in central park. Right. So like in that instance, sorry, I'll back up. So what Sam says is that, you know, racism is tough because it's a motive, right? It's a thought process. And unless somebody has like a pattern of behavior, that is racist or they say racist things, it's harder. Um, and so I'm not directly commenting on what happened. I'll come back to it. But like the, the incident incident with, um, the they're both Cooper, Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper. Um, that incident was like, so obviously racist because she was literally saying racist things while doing it. Right. Yeah. And for the audience, if there's anyone who doesn't understand what happened in that case, um, because it's easy to, it's easy to see these like headlines and stuff and kind of scroll past them. But in that situation, um, Amy Cooper is a woman who was walking her dog in central park. Um, uh, an African-American man, uh, uh, confronted her, I believe about, um, enforcing a leash law or, or reminding her of that. There's a section of the park where there's a leash law and her dog wasn't on a leash. And, uh, there was some kind of disagreement ensued. He pulled out his phone to start videotaping, 
um, as as has become a a measure of sort of defense for um, for African American people in situations like this. Um, he pulled out his phone to start videotaping the situation. That only further uh, incited her uh, anger, and she then threatened uh, this man that she was. <laughs> this is the craziest part to me is that she threatened the man to not only call the police, but if I remember correctly, she threatened to tell the police that he was that he was black. That he was. Black, that he was <laughs> yeah. an a- she said, "I'm going to call the police." and tell them that an african-american man is threatening me and and to me that's like the the crazy like that was the hardest part of this (laughs) to like really believe i'm like is is this person serious right now so not only is this person aware of uh you know let's just for now let's just say um apparent uh systemic racism in 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 the criminal justice system but she is threatening to weaponize it against this person and and you know obviously no one died in this situation but i mean to me this is this situation is is more toxic to the psyche of america than maybe even the situation of uh the man who died in police custody obviously one is 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 more um has greater ramifications because there's a person who's lost their life um but one of this is so blatant and toxic and and willfully malicious that um, I think is is important to talk about. But um, yeah, so that's that's uh, sort of the and then she's subsequently been fired from uh, her position at whatever you know. I think she was at like a some kind of financial firm or something like that yeah. they fired her they made a statement that they say we don't endorse any racism and they acknowledge that this is an obvious uh, <laughs> as any good pr team does <laughs> yeah i yeah. always just find those statements hilarious because it's like does nobody cares like what you're saying right. you know is just some to bull crap it just is right like, and also no one endorses racism not even racist true true you know? <laughs> You know, most racists don't even endorse racism. Yeah. They don't think what they're doing is racist, but uh, no one endorses racism. And we'll get to that, too, because I think there's a lot of in the aftermath of Minnesota and and in the Central Park incident, uh, a lot of the retorts I'm hearing from the more traditionally conservative voices are these straw man points about, you know, you know, people uh, uh, insinuating that there are people who are advocating for violence, advocating for rioting and looting and 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 no one. No one wants these things, and that, and we'll get to that. But anyway, that's the background for the Amy Coomer, Amy, Amy Coomer, Amy Cooper incident. But go on, yeah. continue. Uh, yeah. So you, I mean, one thing you said that was really interesting. I like, well, I like the way you put it. Is that um, she basically like went second level on right. the whole racism card? Um, yes. So I I didn't think too much about the whole thing because I was just uh-huh. like, wow, this is ridiculous, right? Like I almost <laughs> yeah. thought it was like funny because it was just so ridiculous but yeah it's um, absurd but when i talked to my friend uh yesterday he was kind of saying what you were saying but didn't quite um analyze it to 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 that level but he said Uh he said you know wasn't it ridiculous how she was using his race as leverage and i thought that that was an interesting way to put it and that's exactly what you're saying but you're also analyzing the fact that she's aware that this is a, this is a problem for him, right? It's second level. It's uh, right. Sh- and then she takes it out. Now I'm going to use it. That's the leverage point. Um, so as, like, as a threat, which is, is yeah, crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, yeah. I, by the way, I think that, um, his reactions to it afterwards, the comments uh-huh. he's made, I think are also right on. We don't have to, I don't really think we should go into too much detail, but he was saying, you know, this he said something like you know what what happens is bad and it's evidence of other problems or blah 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 but he mm-hmm. said you know i don't necessarily think that this whole lady's life should be ruined 
And I think that that's like a, it's a bummer because, um, you know, it's kind of what we were talking about before in terms of like learning from things. Mm -hmm. Um, and she learned a, a massive lesson, uh, but she learned a massive lesson that's going to be really, really hard to like come back from, you know, worse than, worse than people that commit actual crimes. Um, and they're not like public, like the whole world knows you're a racist. Uh, you know, it's like, Oh crap, you're not going to have any friends, no jobs. Um, you know, Takashi six nine, you know he's he's having a better <laughs> a better recovery than she will. But anyway, I we don't have to get I, hung I up was on not that. aware. I was not aware that you were paying that much attention to Takashi six nine. Dude, uh, I find should, that whole scenario should, fascinating because he's the biggest idiot I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, like, we should definitely um, we should definitely go there. I don't want to leave this conversation quite yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I so. But back what, to we can it, talk about the systemic and the isolated if you want. Sure. Um, there was something that you said that was. Um, Oh, yes. The idea of before we get there, I think I don't want to leave this point. I think the idea of there's definitely a as we're getting into the business of let's call it racial reconciliation in the United States, Uh there has to be. And Sam Harris makes this point a lot. But I think part of that conversation has to be about uh, redemption and how how is there a path for redemption out of being shamed? But I do think that whether it's shame like social shame or some some kind of whatever the 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 new mechanic for it is i do think that there is an i think so in the aftermath of what happened in minneapolis a lot of people are calling for all these cops that were involved to be tried for murder and put in prison which i can't disagree with i mean it's obviously in my opinion it's an obvious murder at the very least it's manslaughter or some kind of negligent yeah. um death scenario so i do think there should be some sort of i do think a law was broken in some you know uh, for all intents and purposes but like because i think about racism in a systemic way and not just an interpersonal prejudice like to me my my anger is less at the one cop and my anger is more so at really society american society as a whole and the institutions that we endorse that are so obviously biased against people of color and our refusal to acknowledge those infrastructures and systems and because there are no incentives in place and this is why i hate the idea of like oh there's just a few bad apples and there's good cops and all this there it's impossible to for there to be quote-unquote good cops i believe that there are good people in every institution but I feel like it's impossible to be a good cop because there is nothing systemic within the institution that incentivizes you to to be better than the worst of what we see. Does that make sense? Like yeah. and and that's the problem and with this Amy Cooper person, they're socially not just like within in, in infrastructure like policing or law enforcement, socially there really is no incentive for her to behave any differently than she did behave there's no incentive for her to not weaponize her privilege against this guy um the only incentive she has against that is maybe lose her job and maybe some social shame but i don't know if those incentives are close enough to the vest in the moment that can make you you know want to think differently in the moment when you're filled with emotion and filled with that kind of stuff. I feel like we need to look carefully at like, how can we change? I think that's the answer to the, to, at the core of all of this is how can we restructure 
um, some some of our oldest and most important institutions, as well as socially, what kind of new infrastructure can we put in place that incentivizes people to transcend their worst natures? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, you said several things that were really interesting there. The yeah. um, the point the point related to, I guess you're saying, you know, good people can be cops, um, right. bad people can be cops, but there's there's no such thing as being a good cop. Um, because the, and when you're talking about the institution or the structure, I guess you're talking about the, the rules that govern being a police officer or the status quo that comes with being a police officer. Right. The rules, the, 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 um, the culture of what it means to be a cop, Mm -hmm. sort of the, the priorities of loyalty to your fellow officers more so than to citizens, like all of these sort of the unspoken sort of what it means to be a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, the way the way police officers are taught to profile um, as someone who has family members that are law enforcement are, you know, federal agents and things like that. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're in in police academies and in different academies for law enforcement. Like you're taught to profile people based on what they look like. Well, here's a ba- here's a hot topic. And um, I don't know if you want to open that door, but the profiling thing. So and I always keep referencing Sam Harris, but um, mm-hmm. but he has a lot to say on the profiling thing. Right. Like, uh, he says, I think a specific example that he got in trouble for was he said, um, basically we don't need to profile, I think he said, we don't need to profile Jerry Seinfeld at airports for extra screening. Um, there's this whole statistical thing that's like at odds, right. Where they, where it seems like as a police officer, you could justify certain, you could justify certain aspects of profiling if if you had the data or something, but then it also becomes like a self fulfilling prophecy, right? Like, right. But, he, right. but he's also making a point that Sam is saying, if I remember correctly, that certain amount of profiling makes sense and it should be done. Right. Um, and I don't know if I don't know if we want to open that, but um, but it's pretty. I mean, that's 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 playing with fire for sure when he says those kinds of things. Um, but then, on the other hand, what he's saying that I that I think is interesting is he says he he flips it to a positive side and says we're basically wasting resources if we're looking at people that shouldn't be looked at, right? Um, and 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 that's that's the point I was about to raise because yeah. I think I think in order to police the way that police are being asked to do their jobs now, a certain amount of profiling is almost inevitable based on what they're being asked to do which is why i think like there has to be a point where we have to ask the question if cops if cops if cops for the most part most people would make this argument if police officers for the most part are doing their jobs they're just doing what they're being asked to do and yet an entire group of people don't feel like they're getting this equal treatment based on those cops just doing their job is are we you have to ask yourself or we have to ask of the system are we asking police to do something that they're not able to do um or efficiently or well and i think that may be the problem i i uh, this example a similar example it's it's a it's going to seem different but it's a similar train of thought i was having an argue an argument or a discussion with uh, my buddy about um highway patrol mm-hmm. and and traffic laws and things like that um are we are we at the point where, because basically we were talking about like 
are is have do do have is having traffic cops does that have any meaningful effect on the safety of how people drive like having human police officers patrolling the highways does that make any reasonable statistical impact on driving safety or fatality rates or anything like that i don't know the answers i didn't do the research um i would say that probably the advent of seat belts uh has done more for decreasing automobile fatalities and automobile injuries more than having uh you know uniformed police officers in cars randomly kind of arbitrarily you know patrolling the highways and i think it's a there's a there's a point where human effort to enforce sort of um uh there there is there is there's a there's a certain i think there's a certain ceiling to the amount of efficacy a human being can have on enforcing things that should be self-enforced does that make sense yeah like traffic laws like social norms like you know, well, on the, uh, on the traffic laws thing, this is like a different um, point, but I think it could be solved. I got a few things to say on that, but I think it could be solved um, by structuring the streets in such a way that it forces people to drive safely um, right. and it's more effective. So an example of this in my neighborhood, this is kind of random, but it's like something that really bothers me. So we live across the street from an elementary school and mm-hmm. um, people blow the stop sign. Like literally there's a stop sign right in front of my house that's right in front of the school all mm-hmm. day long and they go really f- I, people people don't even try to stop um <laughs> last night last night somebody came by on a motorcycle going literally 50 miles an hour just straight through the stop sign um mm-hmm. and people do that all day long and um apparently there was like some community meeting about putting the stop signs in our neighborhood there hadn't been stop signs mm-hmm. and one of the ideas was um was speed bumps mm-hmm. people like poo pooed the see the speed bump idea for some reason and it didn't happen but the irony is we got a stop sign there and nobody's going to stop at it unless somebody's patrolling it. Um, but you could just right. put in speed bumps and nobody's going to be flying over the speed bumps. Right. Um, and you could, right. you could police, um, you know, you could have a highway patrol sort of scenario, literally structurally making the streets to drive people, make people drive safer. Um, but just a random note on the profiling thing that I think is kind of funny related to um, CHP. I don't, I, you probably don't remember the car I drove in college, but I had a um, I had an Acura RSX. Do you know uh-huh. what that is? Yeah, I'm very um, familiar. And it had a big spoiler on the back of it. Um, it came with it. Did I you, didn't put it on there. Did you also have it uh, outfitted JDM style with the uh, with the the steering wheel on the other side? No, no. I mean, you know, that's the dream, right, for all us racer boys. But um, no <laughs> kidding. Um, but, racer uh, boys with an I, B O I. Yeah. Multiple eyes and a Z, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I got pulled over constantly in that car for absolutely no reason. Yeah, all the time. Like probably about once a month, and I could mm-hmm. call it. Like I remember one time I was driving back from Santa Barbara with my buddy, um, and because my cousin went to UCSB, we're on the freeway and we passed a, a. And I never sped in that car for this reason, mm-hmm. and um, we were passing a CHP, and I was like. I said to him, like, watch this. Like, I'm going to get pulled over right now. And we got off the freeway to get gas, and the CHP pulled in right in behind me. And they would just be like, what's up? Like, where are you going? What are you doing? Like, it was like the the dumbest (laughs) interactions of all time, um, just, like, seeing what was up. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's my – those are my comments on the the highway patrol thing. Um, And I I don't know how that relates to society as a whole. 
um, in terms of structuring, structuring things for people to behave. Right. I guess, I guess I'm saying that like the point I'm trying to make is that, um, there is a limit to, uh, there's a limit to what the efficacy of, of policing behavior, um, can do, um, that, and I think the implementation of the proper incentives go that reach oh, of that goes 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 way beyond you know the our ability to police behavior and i think that's we we just but that's harder to do the the way to implement that is not always obvious and sometimes takes longer to get results and i think that's why it, it's a project that a lot of people just kind of ignore and just kind of want to keep stuff as you know as usual and just add more police but i think at the, yeah. at the crux of it like we have to re-incentivize society to to do the right thing rather than you know try to police people in you know into not doing the wrong thing yeah and i think um well so the incentive thing i think is pretty interesting uh i was thinking about that in terms of the amy cooper example um where all she is the only reason she wouldn't behave that way um is because of like backlash Right. It's, right. it's a it's a negative reinforcement scenario. Right. Which is a form of policing. You know what I mean? Right. And it's so just how do you yeah. how do you what does an incentive what's an incentive for her? Or what could be an incentive for her to like not be a racist? Like, how do you what do they, you kind of hinted at this, but I have no idea what that could even like look like. Well, obviously, the in the social sphere of things, like it's a little bit I think the answer is going to tend to be a little bit more. um what's the word um maybe not esoteric but um a little bit more intangible i guess um or a little bit more conceptual i think is a better word than um than sort of the obvious you know the obvious um more tangible solutions for like something like traffic laws and stuff like that but yeah i think if there was some sort of like and you know the funny thing is andrew yang talked about this like what if tied into some sort of universal basic income was sort of like a social currency where you're, um, where you mentioned this and we never came back to it, but have you seen, right. the, have you seen the black mirror episode with the likes and stuff? Yeah. It's called nosedive. I love that episode. Is that what you're thinking about? I'm thinking about something like that, but that isn't based on individual interpersonal feedback. Because I think there there is a problem. I think you run into a lot of negative incentives, as we're seeing with social media as it is now. I think if there was a social currency, I don't think it should necessarily be based on. Um, I don't think the the weight of of your currency should be dependent on what someone how someone else interprets your behavior in terms like any one person. I think it could yeah. be something maybe like, I, I don't know. Um, I I would know, but. I so would have to, I, you know. I'll say I'll say on on like a broad general level. I don't I don't know if we need to get a ton of detail. I'm pretty apprehensive toward anything like that. They got something like that in China, um, but I do think mm -hmm. there's something interesting that you touched on. So you said that um, you know it shouldn't be based on somebody's interpretation of the, of how you're treating them or how you're behaving. Mm -hmm. um, and but so one thing I guess I've learned in my like adulthood, but um, my, so my wife used to manage a, a salon and, um, one of the things I've, I've realized about management, it is, doesn't mm -hmm. matter as a manager, if you said the right thing and you did the right thing, what matters is whether your associate did what you like asked them to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So like bad. And so that, that's like evidence of whether you're a good manager or not. 
right? Like you might right. come up to somebody and their personality is totally different. And so you have to approach the situation totally different and, and mm-hmm. you can get mad. You can, have, you can act to everybody the same. You can, you can, you know, wave your arms, do whatever, but mm-hmm. the evidence of a good manager is whether there are results. And so, um, people's reactions to the things that you say, this is something I've had to think about a lot because I get kind of in my own head with like logic and stuff like that. And like, I, I get hung up on ideas, like literally what I said is true. Um, but figuring out how to, how to phrase things so that it actually elicits the response that you're expecting. So mm-hmm. the, the idea that somebody else could be the judge of your behavior at least is interesting and probably not totally, um, totally wrong um the mm-hmm. way it plays the way it plays out in in black mirror is scary but um yeah, right then, totally uh but and maybe it's a thing that's a little less obvious than that maybe it's i i do think it comes back uh, and sam harris makes this point we talk about him a lot on this podcast obviously but um <laughs> i feel like what a lot of it comes back to is the way children are educated um the environments they're exposed to when they're young mm-hmm. um I can imagine someone like Amy Cooper, if I'm just going to not based necessarily based on her race, but based on what she does for a living and her being in Central Park, meaning she probably lives near there. Mm -hmm. Um, She works at a financial firm. She was probably born into an environment where she didn't see a lot of people who weren't like her and not just race wise, but um, she probably is the daughter of someone who worked in the financial industry um, who. Uh, she's probably uh, went to a you know a private school or a very you know ritzy wealthy school in near Central Park in New York. Um, she probably went to some college where she's you know either her parents went some there or somewhere similar. So she's probably ha- lived a very insulated life in terms of or a very homogenous life uh, in in that sense. And I think that that shapes how you um, how you interact with people who you perceive to be different than you. Um, because there's just, I think there's just a mystery to those other people. And so what you, your perception of people who you're not familiar with, it can only be shaped by your imagination and, and the, the stuff that you see that feeds that imagination. Um, so I think part of it is how do we, I think how the way you incentivize people to treat people like individuals is to immerse your kids in situations where they're around lots of people who are different than them at an early age so that, they are because I think what that does is it erases the myth that just because someone doesn't look like me or or talk like me or isn't from the same town as me or whatever doesn't mean there's anything that makes them different from me other than mm-hmm. that you know in any interesting compelling way um, I think that's part of it and I think another part of it too is it comes back to uh, changing policing because if she knew without a shadow of her uh, shadow of doubt in her heart that. Uh, in policing, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. They're going to treat you like an individual and 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 treat yeah. you fairly and equally. If she knew that, there would be nothing for her to weaponize. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I think you you erase the incentive by erasing the reality of what this incentive plays into. You know, she would have yeah. no incentive if there was no there was no way to weaponize it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Like a, a perfect example is when like when two like when two so, so the classic example of like sort of like sort of a, 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 a mother father um, parenting dynamic is that the mother does a lot of the the sort of interpersonal child rearing and the father falls into the disciplinarian role in like a sort of an old fashioned sense. Right. Yeah. If, you mean the correct if, way. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean the the one correct and only way, as dictated to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on yeah. stone tablets. Um, if you know, in the classic sort of Roseanne sense, if if every time you know your father was called in to discipline you, he gave you ice cream. Um, at a certain point, the there is no incentive for the mom to weaponize your father as a disciplinarian because she knows that that discipline. The, the the idea of that father being the disciplinarian doesn't exist. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. you've, you've now erased that incentive, not only for the child to behave, but you've also uh, erased that incentive for the mother to weaponize the father as a disciplinarian. And I think that that is a huge part of it. If there were no consensus about inequality uh, in, in sort of the treatment of police or the treatment of, of colored people by police, then there wouldn't be an incentive for her to try to use that against uh, the man in the, the park. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So there's, there's something that I feel pretty passionate about and we've, we've brought up, um, we've at least mildly discussed on Facebook, I think once, um, and it's related to what you're talking about. And I think it's interesting and contentious. Um, but we're talking about, so in the past you said, you know, skin color should be something as uninteresting as, you know, hair or eye color, right? Yeah, and that's um, Sam Harris. I didn't, I didn't originate that quote. That that's from yeah. Sam Harris. Yeah, yeah, and he he seems to like to say that all the time. Um, yeah. Like the like most of us, you have our little phrases, but um, yeah. And uh, and so I'm fully on board with that. And I and so my my idea of racial recognition is motivated by the idea of erasing differences, so people stop seeing people as different. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it borders on, it borderlines on colorblindness, which I know mm-hmm. is really not in vogue these days, but I, I yeah. would say that I disagree with the critiques of colorblindness. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a, um, so there's this thing that uh, I want to say there was a documentary, but people like to say this phrase that says something like it, it's, okay. it's that white people, um, don't know how to, or why are white people so bad at talking about race? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's that white people are bad at talking about it. I think that white people are afraid of talking about it, right? Um, which I think is different because it says um, because they don't know what to be sensitive to or something, or or they feel like they're going to say something wrong or they step on a landmine. But anyway, all that to say, I think if we can figure out how to how to get rid of differences and have people stop seeing things people as different. So I'll give you an example. That okay. just illustrates the his, the ridiculousness of race. Um, okay. So my mom, my mom is adopted. Her two brothers are adopted, um, and so a lot of my family isn't like blood related and has like different backgrounds, um, at least genetically, right? right. Um, and I, I don't know how personally I'm supposed to get on these things, so I'll try not to incriminate anybody. But um, one of my <laughs> mom's brothers is quite a bit darker than her, um, and his whole life he thought he was Italian. Um, and so his whole life, um, I mean, I was, my, my wife's family's like all Italian. I'll just say that he doesn't look any different than them. It's very believable that he's Italian. Right. right. Well, he found out later in life that he's not Italian at all. Um, (laughs) and he's actually Mexican. Um, and the ridiculousness of the way that like race is used is that he's still the same guy. Everybody thought of him as white before. And now all of a sudden, because he's Mexican, he's like not white, um, which is just the most ridiculous right. thing you've ever heard. I think I've ever right. heard in my life. Um, and this has actually probably gotten me in trouble before. But but there's like a default understanding 
for some reason in American society that if you come from south of the border, you're not white, um, right. which is like, it's absurd because at some point, um, well, one, I'm not, that's also not to say this is supposed to be like a trap, but this isn't, this isn't to <laughs> say that whiteness is, is a goal. Um, it's more to illustrate the fact that it's absurd that all of a sudden, if you're from a different country, that would change your race. Like if race were real, it wouldn't matter what country you were from. Right. Um, and I think that be, because we praise and embrace differences so much, I think it divides people way more than it brings them together. Um, right. And we recognize individuals as being different than people or other right. people. And so, yes, I, I think that's a very interesting point. Um, and I, I agree with that. Um, I am going to disagree. I'm going to push back a little bit on the notion of um, of not seeing difference or sort of uh, getting to the colorblind territory. Because I, I think I'm going to say something very um, that's going to sound very pro- provocative. But as I explain it, will become less so. Don't worry. I'm not scared. Uh, <laughs> I'll say the problem with race is whiteness. Um, and what that means is race as as a way to identify someone ethnically and biologically is not inherently a wrong thing um to look at someone sorry, sorry, i think say it, that I, my, my what did you say that last sentence <laughs> sorry i said race as a way to categorize someone ba- like ethnically and biologically um mm-hmm. i don't think is inherently wrong at all i think that there are going to be obvious similarities between people groups based on genetics and uh i think um there's something to, you know, I think it, it has served us in the past to see someone who looks like us and, and, and have a have a commonality with that person. I don't think there's a problem with that where I where I think race became an issue is in the idea of whiteness and when whiteness was created, because white is not an ethnicity. Um, uh, white is not a race. I mean, it is a race in colloquially. It's a race that we is now a race classification, but white is not indicative of any specific genetic code or any, you know, sort of ethnic heritage. White just, so you're saying, you're saying, um, you're saying whiteness used as a race, as opposed to the way that these other races might be used. Um, no, I think, it's, about, I, think it's, I think it's deeper than that because I think whiteness uh, and then from whiteness, you get blackness. I think whiteness is a response to um, other ethnic identities. And it is and it is built on the notion of whereas like if you were to say I'm Mexican, right, mm. that is someone who shares a common you know, genealogy with people who are from the same part of the world, whether they're born there or not. Right. I'm of Mexican descent. I'm a Mexican. That is the race. My race is Mexican. Whereas whiteness says, are you saying that that's okay? I'm saying, I'm saying that, uh, yes, I'm saying that there's nothing inherently wrong with that. What I'm saying is where, where race becomes an issue for me, in my opinion, is whiteness because whiteness is built on the notion of we're not this we're that we're different. Does that make sense? Like whiteness is built on whiteness is built on the need to otherize other people. Cause white does not, the way Mexican speaks to a certain genetic code or like a certain, you know, um, 
you know, d- you know, strand strand of DNA that is rooted in one location. Whiteness is not that. The white white means simply, and this is most evident when you start to look at like. Um, in you know, in the turn of the century, America, when you start getting immigrants from Europe and stuff like that, yeah, whiteness yeah. whiteness becomes a thing, a classification to use to separate yourself from those you don't want to be. So I could look like some like so if I'm a white guy, quote unquote, from America, like a waspy sort of white guy from the '40s, I can look exactly like someone who's you know from Poland or something like that. And even have similar genetics to that person, but I'm saying that I'm white as opposed to Polish because that the, I don't desire to be Polish. I desire to be something else. Or I'm not Jewish, even though I may be and may look just like this person. I'm white. White is white is a reaction. It, it white is in a lot of ways a lack of identity. Uh, thrown to you know thrown in the face of others to to not have to be classified with other people to make ourselves different does that make sense yeah you you said about 50 interesting things there so i don't know how <laughs> sorry I'll I'll, I'll, I'm, <laughs> I'm a stream of consciousness consciousness type of guy no, so it's like, good it's really um, hard the just i don't want to i, I want to attach attach or, or sorry address the um stuff you said at the end but there are a couple things i at least just wanted to mention but I, I would object to race being used ethnically or biologically mm-hmm. um, and challenge the idea that that could even really exist. Um, I think what you're talking about sure. is not – because I think you're talking about whiteness differently in terms of – you're literally talking about like the sociological history of the way that it's been used. Right. Whiteness, um, and, whiteness and its sort of – its cultural implications, not yeah, necessarily yeah. anything biologically – um, um, whiteness is a is a is a cultural identity that that, that I think th- there I think that's the point I've been trying to make but I couldn't find a way to articulate it uh-huh. I think I think there's um I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging someone's ethnicity um, but when you start to conflate ethnicity with sort of social socially constructed people groups yeah. I think based on you know you know the way people look I think there's a problem with that um. Yeah, I'd, I'd go all the way down and say it's all socially constructed, and I'll give you some examples of that too. Okay. Um, but but I get what you're saying. You know, I have one one question there. Like, what if uh, what if the word white was replaced with Caucasian? Um, I haven't really thought about that enough. But but the idea of like using the word Caucasian is that it, I'm just feeding into what you're saying because this isn't necessarily my viewpoint. But um, right. but the idea of like Caucasian is almost that it's more biological. Than white or something, right? Like I think if you're it sounds. Like... I think it sounds more biological, <laughs> but I don't think it is. Uh, okay. I don't. I because because I mean, what do you say? I mean, so is someone in? And I'm not asking you. I'm just asking uh, yeah, hypothetically. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, rhetorically, if someone, if there's a someone who's shares, you know, ninety percent of their DNA with me, and their ancestors are from West Africa or whatever, but yeah. that person is albino and has blonde hair and blue eyes, like, is that person white? No, they're still considered black, and that's and that's the thing. That's the reason why why race, specifically in terms of whiteness, to me, is is just an absurdity because you can call it, you can, re, whiteness is a cultural identity masquerading as a racial identity. There's nothing yeah, about. I'd say, I'd, say no, all, I'd say all races are. That's probably where I differ, but. 
You think so? Um, so have you have you seen Trevor Noah? Well, first off, I I always defer to South African race relations when talking about this kind of stuff because right. I think it's so fascinating um, and it's very different than the U.S. But have you heard Trevor Noah's should, bit? Uh, I think about, just. Uh, yeah. tangentially, I don't, I don't want to pause here too long, but yeah. I think you and I should, for an episode, we should, uh, watch the movie district nine. You ever seen that? Yeah. Yeah. And we um, can talk about that. I think that's that'd be great, interesting a, since you're so into South African sort of politics and stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I Sorry, think that their, their race relations and cultural relations are so much more complicated and, and really interesting. But, um, but anyway, so have you seen Trevor Noah's bit on him coming to the U S the first time? Um, probably, but go ahead and uh, run it back for me. It's, it's really funny because it really just sums up the whole thing. So in South Africa, he's colored. Um, do you know that term? Right. Yes. And so, and that's not, and it's funny because if you say that word out loud in an American context, like this is step number one of why race is dumb, right? I don't even have to go to the story, but you say that word and it's like, oh crap, you just said something racist, right? Because of the way that word has been used in the U S but right. there, but there it's a self-identification, Right. Um, right. and it's a, there are cultural aspects to it too. And so there he's not seen as black. Um, right. and he's not seen as white. He's seen as colored and he was basically warned. Um, this is what he says in his skit. He was like warned that, you know, when you go to the U S people are going to see you as black. And he's like, right. Oh, and that's interesting. And, uh, he said, he said on the, so on the plane right over, he was watching BET and like hip hop videos or something. This is because he's like, you know, in his really funny way, he's like, you know, I was trying to like embrace American black culture because this is, you know, what I was going to be a part of. And he says, you know, it's funny because I landed in New York and when I got off the plane, people started speaking Spanish to me. <laughs> yeah. And so like all of even the preconceived ideas of how he thought it was going to play out when he got there or people thought it was going to play out when he got there, it got totally warped, right? In a completely mm -hmm. different direction. Um, and so if you look at the so the, if we if we think of race as being biological or ethnic, um, then I think we're playing into this nineteenth um, century, you know, racist science pseudoscience that really culminated in the Nazis, where they were measuring people's heads and um, right. you know checking people's nose sizes, try to figure out, and because nobody's really been able to do this because it because it is socially constructed. And so the ridiculousness of the way that this has played out in South Africa, because they did, they had to come up with a system to try to judge people's races too, um, mm -hmm. because they classified people kind of going backwards, right? Um, but that's what right. people don't realize is that like apartheid started in the forties. It was sort of it, when the whole world was trying to like start like you know. Um, go away from racism. They ramped it up. They doubled down. Not that they yeah. weren't racist to begin with. They're like, hey, like let's do more. So there's mm -hmm. this notorious thing they called the pencil test. Um, and so the way that they would judge whether you were either not white or whether you were black, I'm not sure because those are like different designations. Um, mm -hmm. Is they would put a pencil in your hair. Um, and if the pencil wow. if the pencil stayed in your hair, then you you either weren't white or you were black. I'm not sure which one it meant. Um, and, but this was their like science. This is the and way they were like trying if you were to, if you were bald, they just killed you. Well, yeah, that's like the, the, one of the ridiculous <laughs> things, right? So what happens? We got nowhere. Um, yeah. and this was like part of like their testing. Um, huh. there's a really good movie about, um, a lady who she got reclassified as colored and both of her parents were white. Um, because right. it was suspected that there, there was a black person way back 
and their lineage and some of the traits showed up again. And I think the, I saw that movie. And she failed the she failed the pencil test. Yeah, um, I think I saw that movie. Well, failed it in their terms, right? <laughs> right, um, right. So anyway, um, I I don't know. I think it's dangerous to think about race as being biological, and I think that yeah. that's where it leads. Yeah, I do. So I yes, I think I think I, I agree. I think we've reached a, an agreement here. I think mm-hmm. um, race to to call race anything else but a socially constructed idea i think is dangerous territory i guess the point i was making was i don't i don't think the the answer to solving racism is to is to move to a place where we fail to recognize people's differences because mm. i do think that differences are important not in the fact not in the idea that they divide us but in the idea that like it's okay to be an individual because i do think we should treat people like individuals um and I do think that there is something to um, I think in the same way that there's something to us all recognizing the humanity within all of us and that being the thing that unifies us. I don't see anything inherently wrong with being unified along similar physical features um, and not as being the primary or even the most interesting di- you know, distinction between people um, or the most interesting thing that that uh unifies you with someone but i I don't because i one thing that race in america you know it hasn't all been bad obviously there's been some positive things that have come out of grouping people together by how they look because people have had to find other sources of unity because you know there's been so many hurdles put in the way of us unifying just as human beings people have had to find other ways to unify themselves um, whether they're along color lines um, or not. And a lot of times those color lines tend to uh, go deeper and run into like um, ethnic lines and cultural lines. And that's how you, I mean, some of the best art that we've ever gotten has been produced under the, under the um, let's just call it under the umbrella of a race, a race based worldview uh, of people. Um, we, some of the best, music in the world some of the the best what what are examples sorry i'm thinking of music that like i'm thinking of music like the blues music that um people oh, music that, music ins- inspired by like the struggle or something Is that and, what you're and, and, yes inspired by the struggle and created out of necessity from the struggle uh, like we, a lot of our uh, modern jazz and R and B and and mm-hmm. and blues and stuff like that is birthed straight out of um, spirituals, right. and the only reason Negro spirituals existed was because of black people being grouped together as slaves in America, and all of these different black cultural uh, cultural identities coming together and becoming this new cultural identity based on blackness. Um, you know, this idea of blackness that was created, you know, sort of out of the leftovers of white, the whiteness identity being created. You know what I mean? Because you go to, I mean, you go to Africa. I mean, I would have, I, I would have loved to see what Africa, like in terms of its, uh, the way they dealt with quote unquote, like ethnicity and stuff like that was like pre-slavery because I mean, you're in Africa. They did. They, I mean, as far as I know, and I, I, I would say I, I have, you know, studied a fair amount, but I don't, I don't know 
there's, so there's a book called The Racial Contract. Um, yep. by, have, you, have you read it? By Charles no. Taylor. Um, he is, I want to say he's from Jamaica. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. Anyway, mm-hmm. he, it's, it's, it's not very long, but it is dense. Um, yeah. And he goes through a lot of this history. But, um, but as far as I know, um, you know, the, the, the slavery started the racism and people didn't people didn't necessarily identify these differences. Um, you know, people people would talk about where you're from, right? Like there are right, right. medieval documents and you know ancient documents where clearly different people groups of what we would like the first thing you would say it's like you know two black guys, a white guy, an Asian guy walking down the street. You know, like those would be the first identifiers <laughs> or something, right? right? Um, but they they didn't do that. They didn't they didn't call people by like colors. Uh, right in ancient times as far as i know i didn't didn't think about it in those terms another example of this too i can't remember where i first experienced this from but a lot of times in in like england when they say asian they mean someone from the continent of asia yeah so it could be an indian guy walking down the street and they could say look at that asian guy Mm -hmm. and i can't remember when the first time i was exposed to that was it was some british show i was watching he's like yeah some asian man's waiting for you in the uh in the reception or whatever and it was they're talking about an Indian guy. But I'm yeah, like, and you were picturing like a Chinese person or something in your head. <laughs> right, right. Right. And and that's in yeah. And so that's like they the when he said Asian, it wasn't a racial um term, it was a term of geography. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, and I think I think that so the hard part which, about which is racism, also like the most ridiculous descriptor, just like a total side note right? because because like Asia is the most populous continent on the planet and they probably got the most different looking people like you could picture pretty much somebody of any race and they could be from asia really um (laughs) so it's like ridiculous anyway go ahead true you go to indonesia there's people that look like black yeah yeah exactly so um but i i do think that's why the racial project or the project of of minimalizing or eradicate eradicating race-based biases and institutions in the United States is such is going to be such a a a nuanced project because because race has been a reality whether whether it's a good thing or not it has been a reality for this country and throughout its formation and for the last you know 400 500 years so much of our our cultures that we have in the United States are along racial lines and to the reality of un, of of undoing race in this country means uncoupling those cultural and ethnic ties that people have and that they that they hold dear to honestly yeah. um from their from their usual um means of connection so like right now like i can you know for for the most part I can identify with someone who looks like me because in the reality of in this country, our experiences are probably not going to be too different from each other, even though I wish that wasn't the case. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's the hard part is we have to make sure that we preserve the good things that that racial divides have uh, have been responsible for um while undoing the negative things that hold us back and it's going to i think unfortunately it might mean you know we have to get rid of the phrase oh that's black music or you know what i mean and i and i i i'm sympathetic to the people being apprehensive about that because it it seems very it can seem very dismissive to say 
Um, you know that thing that you created while you were being oppressed and it means dear to you because it's the only thing you were allowed to do when you were being oppressed? Well, in the betterment of all of us together, you're going to have to get rid of that. You know what I mean? It yeah. seems it seems a little dismissive. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like telling, you know, you know, hey, I know we took uh you know, I know we took all the good firewood uh, early on uh, to make our houses and stuff like that. And you were left with the straw to build your houses. But, you know, we realize that straw is really not good for the environment. And we're, we're willing to share with you now. But all that cool straw art you were able to create in the meantime when you weren't allowed to use anything else. Yeah, we're going to have to get rid of that. You know, it's just yeah. it's just kind of like, it, you know, it seems it can seem very dismissive. That's why I think it's going to have to be a very delicate and sort of nuanced um, project that we engage in. But I think it's a necessary one if we want to really get to the next level of what a, you know, a democratic metropolitan, you know, place can can look like. Yeah. And that's um, I'd call it cosmopolitan. But um, I guess I think that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the. Uh, well, the. <laughs> And this is part of the reason that I, as I opposed to as opposed to a Neapolitan society, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the yeah. colors right, the colors existing well, I, in the same package but next to each other. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just ki I'm kidding. I, I never <laughs> eat the strawberry anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that always just ruined it for me. But um, <laughs> hey, some people like Neapolitan ice cream, man. I think I think Neapolitan Sickos. ice cream might be the the best metaphor for like a traditionally conservative like American mindset. You know, like. You know, there's yeah. nothing wrong with, you know, with chocolate and strawberry. It's just we want them to be, you know, separate and kind of in their place. I mean, they can be here, but yeah, and pasted just... together in a sandwich, right? Just pasted <laughs> and uh, you're good to go. It's like, but yeah, everyone else is like, hey, you know, if we if we stop worrying about each flavor being distinct on its own, we could we could mix them and create all new flavors out of that. And they're like, no, I like the way the flavors the way they are. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And um, really, I think really what we're saying is, you know, ice cream, you know, chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry are just constructs. I mean, at the end of the day, ice cream is just sugar and water and milk. And they're like, no, it's it's strawberry. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> and I mean, how many people actually eat eat all or take a bite of all three flavors at once? Those are the real people that have, you know, reconciled racism but most people yeah. don't eat neapolitan that way you know you kind of pick no. it one or the other so yeah that's true. you know you people even try to consume them separately um not just present them separately yeah uh, it's, it's really weird i mean i'm sure there's a there's a the doctoral thesis in there somewhere oh for sure um <laughs> the uh the so yeah i totally hear what you're saying because and and this i mean i, lo I love this stuff also because it's so complicated um, in the American, you know this, and I think anybody who's thought about this knows this, but a lot of Americans don't know this, um, is the, the real complication of sort of black identity in the U.S. Um, as so different than the way that any other immigrant might come to the U.S., right? right? Um, people don't realize the fact that, you know, when you're when you're kidnapped or you're sold into slavery and brought here um, and you're stripped from of anything that was inherently yours. And right. the only, the only part of the history that unites you has been, um, and I'm not saying literally you, but um, that figurative yes. you person um, yes. is in, in an American black sense is, is having come from um, 
from like slavery, right? It's a it's a produce it's an American it's a American produced cultural identity yes. that erased everything before it, right? And, um, and the only the only significant thing about blackness, it, you know, when it was created was the only thing that blackness told you when you got off the ship was you are not white. Like that's right. all like blackness didn't mean anything else. All of yeah. it was what whatever we are, you are not. And so blackness was this thing where like so from that point forward, anything created from within the black community is precious because it's all we had, you know, we yeah. didn't have the luxury of just being Americans. Like that's, that wasn't, mm-hmm. we weren't that. So when people say, you know, I, that's why I hate the idea of patriotism in an American context, because it's like, what, what nation are we being patriotic to? Are we being patriotic to the nation that white people have enjoyed for 400 years? Or are we being patriotic to the nation that black people have lived in for the last 400 years? Cause those are two very different places. And then yeah. they, they haven't, and they've only been, not so different for maybe the past 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And even still, it's very different. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. And I, mean, I, I, I mean, we're on the same page, but I just don't think people, I would say, and this might be pushing it pretty far, but I would say that that fact alone of not having a history and not having chosen to be American, like every other immigrant chooses, right. um, probably serves to divide people more than anything. Yeah. Um, because, because, uh, you know, the chain, the chains were broken or whatever, figuratively. Right. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're dropped, you're dropped in a society and you have no other identity other than the chains. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're put in a box, um, you know, through things like segregation and then those things are outlawed. Um, but it doesn't mean that the chains are like not still there because that's the only like identity, which is so different than choosing to come to a country and choosing to be American, maybe choosing to give up your roots too. Um, right. but, but at the same time, the assimilation, um, and assimilation isn't the right word, but the, the blending or whatever of cultures and whatever it is to be American is, is way more second nature, but um, but anyway, it's, it, it's such a complicated thing. And I'd say one thing, so you said now that those different, those differences are probably more erased than ever. And I'll bring back the music point. Um, mm-hmm. but it's interesting how insanely influential, um, black music has been if we think, right. and I'm not thinking about, you know, I'm not thinking about like hip hop or rap or anything. I'm thinking about yeah. the blues and the jazz, because mm-hmm. it, and this is so interesting because it's like empowering in like a democratic sense or an individualist sense in the fact that, you know, who were the people playing music 150 right. years ago? Um, you know, people thought of music as being these big orchestras and this, you went to school and you learned and, and, <laughs> right. and what emerged out of, you know, the early 1900s is people putting bands together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like literally the, like the essence of like rock music and, you know, yeah. everything that came after that, um, which is, is pretty interesting too, but whatever, we don't have to get hung up on that. Yeah. All right. I do. Cause I, I you know, I want to be respectful of your time and yeah. we could go, man, we could talk for years on this. I yeah. do want to get to, um, I want to talk about, uh, president Trump. Uh, I want to talk about, oh. yeah, I would love to talk Sorry. about the, uh, uh, did you have any other bows you want to put on that conversation before we move on? No, just I want to put a disclaimer out there that I'm not a racist. 
<laughs> no, I, I I don't think that you. I'm kidding. Um, I just I was gonna um I was just trying to put a button on the the statement from Amy Cooper's company. You know, you gotta oh, I know, have right? a PR. Go ahead. Uh, I just want everyone to know that I do not approve of racism. Um, uh, no, uh, I do want to get to uh, President Trump, who uh, took to social media uh, early. I think it was last week. And uh, he made some comments about um, voting by mail, and I, I want to—I do want to get to that. But let's get to the social media thing first. Um, he made some comments about—he uh, made some statements, not comments. He made some statements about vote by, vote by mail, saying things like um, uh, voting by mail would almost assuredly be uh, uh, fraudulent and and tampered with, and and blah 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 blah, and. I think maybe for the first time, Twitter fact, put a fact check um, thing, put a fact checker on, mm-hmm. I think, two of his tweets. Um, I don't know if Twitter has fact checked other people's tweets um, before, but I know this was the first time that they had done it to President Trump. And he got all upset about that and yelled free speech, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, from the from the top of the mountains. And uh, this week he signed an executive order um making some restrictions on uh, certain protections, quote unquote, as he called it, that uh, that social media platforms enjoy if they're going to show political leanings and, ex- and ex- basically exert a, uh, a um, editorial voice on their platform, then they're going to lose some of their protections that they that they have right now. Um, you want to talk about this and sort of the ethics of it and all that? Yeah. Did you see my post about it? I did, but I wanted to save it for for this, so I didn't even look at it. I didn't even read it because I wanted I, to react. Uh, I wanted to react in person. Genuine. Um, yeah. I um. So I'm doing this thing lately where I try to read Fox News, um, yep. and I try to read Fox News just to um, I don't know, just see if it's as bad as they say it is, or it's as conservative mm-hmm. as you say it is. But anyway, so their post was, or their article was, what's in the executive order? Like, that was the mm-hmm. title of it. Yeah. And the way that they described the executive order, and this is what my post said, the way that they described the executive order made sense to me, and I didn't think there was anything really, like, all that objectionable about, objectionable about it. Mm-hmm. The way that they categorized it is they said that um, there was some statute that came out in the beginning of the internet era. I want to say it's 1996 or something. Um, and it related to like federal funding and like editorial, um, political sort of content. Um, and the, all it was, was like reinforcing this. Um, mm-hmm. and so the government doesn't want to give the way I understood it was the government doesn't want to give money to causes that have a political leaning to them. Um, and or allow tax breaks or something. So I likened this or compared it to like religious organizations that aren't allowed to be politically active or they'll lose like tax exempt status. Right. Um, and I was like, okay, there's nothing really objectionable about that. But if you watch the video, this is just classic Trump. If you watch the video, the way he talks about it could not be more different than what it said. Oh, um, please elaborate. Well, so the one thing I just find hilarious and so contradictory is there's this whole conservative thing where um one they're confused about what public and private companies are which i find right. is a really weird uh not, <laughs> yes. not a public not a public private company a public or private entity right because even right. like public companies are still private companies it's just a publicly traded right but but right. twitter twitter is not no private entity is a uh, or pr- private company is a public forum. Um, like this isn't nobody's infringing. Companies not infringing on your free speech by deleting your your tweets. Um, yeah. 
but they love crying foul and act like it's infringing on free speech. And the irony is that this is the same camp that argues for every business to be able to do whatever they want and stay out of government reach. And it's like this is a prime example of a business doing whatever the hell they want because it's good for business. And one, I've actually thought about this a lot, but one of the things I find really funny, and this is also a comment on the Amy Cooper thing, is that most businesses operate liberally. And why do they operate? And when I say liberally, their policy is is uh, is like open and affirming to some extent. Right? Yeah. Why? Not because they're it's ethically sound, but because you want everybody to shop at your store. Right. Right. So Twitter's doing whatever's in their best interest. Um, in terms of a company making money. Um, And so I got no sympathy for Trump. I think it's hilarious that anybody would back this as an American. Um, And I think it's hilarious that he is such a crybaby. Um, And then the other part of it is that he put this spin on it that Twitter's censoring political conservative voices in on their format. Um, But the whole point is that it was fact-checking. And facts, hmm. facts aren't political. Two plus two equals four. Uh, no matter who you are, if you try right. to say two plus two equals five, you're just wrong. And just because you're conservative doesn't mean that they censored a political opinion because it's not an opinion. Um, and so uh, there's a massive confusion between like facts and opinions. And, and then his that, spin yeah. on is hilarious. Yeah, I, I, I too. Um, think that is a distinction that people are failing to make uh there's a difference between because i think a lot of people are conflating fact checking and censoring and censoring is one thing you know deleting a tweet or banning someone from twitter is one thing but fact checking is not a in is not in its you know if fact checking on its own is not a political statement one way or another it's it's not it's not a comment on someone's opinion. All it is 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 this a fact or not? Yeah, yeah. And I could I I mean, I guess the argument being made by someone who's more articulate than Trump would be um that picking and choosing who they want to fact check right. could could be interpreted as a political or the types or of facts, right? Yeah, or the types of facts that they choose to um fact check could be um an act of of political editorial bias. Absolutely. And, and I agree with that, but I don't believe that Twitter or any company, unless expressly, I think as a, as a company, as a private company, Twitter is only responsible to adhere to its own setup code of conduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it should be subject to anyone else's, uh, as long as, obviously, as long as they're not, you know, doing something that is breaking the law or something like that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I think I think the bottom line is Trump loves Twitter and is mad that Twitter is not doing. He loves exactly Twitter because it. it's the easiest, right? And he it's loves, just right there. Yes. He just he just blurts out tweets. He doesn't have to do anything else. Just blurts them out. Right. It's the one thing he can do on the toilet. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Eating Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever. Isn't that his favorite? Yes, K- Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I think McDonald's. He loves as well. Yeah. So funny. Yeah, I think yes. So I think the, the bottom line is Trump is it loves Twitter because it's easy and he can do it from the toilet and he's <laughs> mad and he's mad that it's not going exactly the way that he wants it to go and that yeah. he you know, he he thought he could just say whatever he wants to say with impunity and he's using this as an excuse 
to sign to you to leverage executive power from the seat of the presidency of the United States over a to personal try to, feud over a personal feud to try to yeah. tell Twitter who they can and cannot yeah, fact yeah. check. And that's, it's just I crazy. Mean, that's a pretty interesting thing because it, it's not as if he's responding to, you know, widespread um, right. disappointment with Twitter and mm-hmm. doing this thing, but it's literally like an isolated tweet that like hurt his feelings, which is crazy and, from and like an executive order. And there's a point, point if you watch the video of Trump reading this, there's a point where he says he brings up this and I want I want your opinion on this. He says that Twitter and other social media platforms have a virtual monopoly on public speech at this point in history. And for that reason, there needs to be some sort of government regulation on it. So I think the monopoly question and like the tech giant question is like is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um but that doesn't mean but what you do in a monopoly scenario isn't that you regulate that the way that the business operates, you break it up. Um right. so it doesn't seem like that's like actually the logical conclusion there. But what it comes down to is that people like Twitter. And Twitter's not right. doing some people and Twitter use it or people use Twitter. So it's like the it's a free market. And so you can't be mad at Twitter that this is the platform everybody wants to use and this is the way that they operate. Right. So right. like the alt right has tried to implement their own social networks and you know gab i think is one of them is gab isn't gab like the facebook but they like don't censor anything i don't uh don't quote me on that but but there is this there is this literally this alt-right sort of world of alternative um social media platforms where they don't get censored and guess what very few people use them yeah um and that's just the free market like if, if if we decide that First off, I don't believe they have a monopoly um, because there are lots of different right. social networks that are not in communication with each other, right? Like totally. Facebook's one thing, Twitter's another thing, Google's a different thing. Um, just because Google Plus sucked and nobody wanted to use it, yeah. um, you know. I mean, Reddit is another thing. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea that it's a monopoly is kind of crazy in the and, first and place. To assume, and to assume that all of these social platforms have some sort of similar agenda or have some sort of political um there's there's some like left-leaning political cabal that governs all social media platforms i think is just conspiracy talk and stupid yeah like the people who work at these companies are vastly different like you know what i mean yeah now i'm I'm, you know i'm sure there's not a lot of you know uh what's his name the 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 frog the fluoride in the water is turning the frogs gay what's his name oh my word i don't even know what you're talking about or uh the interdimensional child molesters What's the guy's name? I don't know what you're talking about at all. I don't know. I don't know the guy's name. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, but the crazy guy who's on Joe Rogan sometimes. Oh. I can't um, think of InfoWars, InfoWars guy. Oh. Alex Jones? Alex Jones. I'm yeah. sure there's not a, a lot of Alex Joneses working at Facebook right now. Yeah. But at the same time, to assume to assume that everybody that works or is in control of Facebook or Twitter or any Instagram or any one of these companies is, is like assuming that, cahoots. yeah, it's like assuming everyone that works at like a, a bank is some crazy conservative person who yeah. hates black people. And it's like, to me, it's the same pathology, you know? Yeah. The, the, the ammo that they use is the fact that you survey these places and the average person that works there is liberal, but but the problem is that that's just a total like correlation causation like conflation yes. right like you have no idea 
why the people that work there are more liberal. It could be because the average age of somebody at Facebook is like 26 years old or something. I was just reading the numbers the other day. Yeah, and also it could be just that at this point in history, a lot of the quote-unquote people who identify themselves as right-leaning or conservative just have bad ideas and communicate (laughs) them in bad ways. Like They're just not interested in technology, which I think (laughs) is also a really fair assumption, right? Like you go to a gun shop, what's the political leaning going to be, right? (laughs) Right. It's going to be like I, pretty obvious. I think that is but like. But that's a conspiracy. Like, that is an absolute yes. conspiracy. We need more yeah. liberals in gun shops. I think that like that that point, though, about like because I think Trump's biggest gripe uh, with Twitter is that there are or, or like if you ask his White House correspondent lady, like what is the gripe is that conservative voices are unfairly are un, under an unfair microscope that left-leaning voices are not on these platforms mm-hmm. um and that these platforms have a liberal bias sure i'm willing to admit that the people at twitter uh who run twitter have a left-leaning bias everybody has some kind of political bias right yeah. but at the same time <laughs> who cares like, i guess at, well at the same time who cares but also like it could just be the thing that the people who tend to say the wildest, you know, most, you know, inflammatory speech at, the, at this current juncture in history tend to be right leaning. So they're going to be under a microscope more because they yeah. say some wild shit like that's possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if we were having some crisis of like a real crisis of like socialism, if we were in Soviet Russia, the voices that were under a heavier microscope, you know, would be left leaning. But we're we're not. We're in the United States in 2020. And the people saying some crazy stuff a lot of times tend to be right wing. Now, there are yeah. people who say crazy things on the left. And then here's and this is why I think Twitter Whatever they say they are, I think the issue comes down to just Twitter, whatever their rules of code of conduct are, they just have to be consistent with whatever those are. And I think you eliminate this. This problem just goes away, you know, right? right. Uh, because I do think that because Twitter, what they claim is because uh, I don't know if you listened to Jack Dorsey when he was on Joe Rogan. Um, basically, he said Big that Bitcoin Twitter, guy, by the way. Yeah, he seems like he would be, <laughs> uh, but he also can't afford to be. Um True. He he said basically that Twitter's code of conduct is has less to do with uh, any particular content and more to do with the behavior in spreading that content. So if it's clear that you're trying to weaponize whatever content you're putting out or use it to harass somebody or to incite violence or make a direct threat to someone with that content, then they are uh, then they have a problem with that and they will police it somehow. But you can post inflammatory material as long as it doesn't directly threaten violence or threaten to harass or, or you're not using it in that kind of harassful does, way. Does the size of the platform make a difference there, too? Like, I got 50 followers on Twitter. If I, t- if I post some inciting stuff, is Twitter going to care as opposed well, to the president? And this is a point that Joe Rogan asked. And what Jack Dorsey says is they don't have a um, – what do you call it? They don't have a preventative – algorithm for that what they have is so no one no one's going to know your your stuff that you're doing is bad unless someone flags you or reports you so if you have a bigger audience you're much more likely to get flagged and reported yeah and a lot more yes so so trump has half the country looking at his tweets and flagging him so of course you know what i mean like and that's and i think that's what's 
what people are failing to realize like twitter is not proactive the users are doing it yeah the, the users, users are doing, doing it. it's not it's not twitter's not reading tweets Right. Um, it's not it's not that at all, actually. And then yeah. once when something is flagged, they're not even reading tweets An algorithm is reading tweets. Right, right. It's so just it's, it's just there's a tipping point. Right. It says like, you right. know, 100 people out of a, out of 150 flagged it. Um, right. Yeah, that's interesting. And definitely, so, I mean, just adds to the whole thing that what Trump's upset about doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. And I just yeah, I think it's just um, I think it's unfortunate that, that this is where we're we're at with this but i do think it comes down to if twitter is it continues to get better at enforcing their own policies consistent consistently i think they won't have to worry and and i was going to say this because i do have an example there's a friend of mine someone i've been friends with and since high school and he's a very like kind of he's a very left-leaning anarcho kind of punk guy right Mm -hmm. Um, he's all about, you know, tearing down power structures and, and returning the power to the people that, that type of guy. And he says often some very inflammatory things about the police. He, he, you know, he advocates for killing police officers. Uh, he says, you know, cops shouldn't feel safe if we don't feel safe, that type of thing. And he gets banned from Twitter every other week Uh and he isn't, he's not conservative at all. He doesn't support the second amendment. He, you know, he doesn't even listen to country music. So what I'm saying is bad American. (laughs) Yeah. He's a bad American in so many ways, but he gets banned all the time. So Twitter is not this, you know, this cabal of left-leaning, you know, ideologues who patrol the internet looking for conservatives to silence that, 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 that is what Trump and his cohorts are making it out to be. But that is, is really not, yeah. Uh, that's really not the the reality situation. The and it's unfortunate. Yes. And yeah. it's unfortunate that uh, I think a lot of social media platforms with this executive order are going to pay the price of Trump's um, propaganda, quite frankly, is what it yeah, is. Yeah. 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 And it's it, it sucks. It really it's, does. It's amazing how good he is. It's amazing how thoughtless everything he does seems to be. Um, mm-hmm. And then you could put together like the world's best PR team and they wouldn't be as good at Trump. As Trump is, it's amazing yeah. how yeah. how brain like what are they, what are they, he calls Joe Biden sloppy Joe, yeah, um, sleepy Joe whatever they the the stuff he comes up with is so third grade and just right. brilliant like it's so it, there's some weird brilliance to the fact that it just sticks it doesn't matter what he says and I have no idea how it just sticks yeah he he's a uh, uh, it's funny I've been watching Mad Men for the first time and I yeah, think yeah. I think he would be great at being an advertising guy in the forties and fifties, yeah. like just cause he speaks to this base level of intelligence that like you, f- no matter what he says, like some part of you feels like, man, I, if he's speaking so plainly about it, it must be true. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm yeah. terrible there, at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I, I ramble. Um, but let's hit, let's hit one more point and then we can sort of, um, kind of round third and see if there's anything else we want to hit. Cause I wanted to talk to you about voting by mail because that's a, that's yeah. something that's looming in the background coming this November. Um, and I know Gavin Newsom, the governor of California has, uh, vowed to sign, uh, an order that, you know, everyone in California will vote f- by mail. President Trump is obviously very against this. It's one of the tweets that got fact checked. Uh, he's pushing the narrative that if we do a vote by mail system, most it, a lot of, if not most of the votes will be fraudulent. There's no way to trust it. They'll be tampered with. The mailboxes will be broken into so people could make 
fraudulent votes and all these kinds of myths that mm -hmm. um, he's pushing. So what is your sort of reaction to both the sort of the Trump myth that's going on with voting by mail? And like, what's your opinion on voting from, from by mail? And then largely, like, what is your opinion on like the voting system and, and all of that? We can get into that. Um, I mean, the, to be honest, I'm hung up on this because uh, all I keep thinking about is cryptocurrency. Um, because there's there's a means for um, there's a means for solving this problem using crypto, and I don't know if we want to get into that, but um, the the problem is verifying who voters are, right, um, and then verifying that they're only going to vote once. And mm -hmm. I don't know if his concerns I don't honestly don't know enough about it to know if his concerns are valid. Um, I know that we do voting by mail all the time. Um, we just don't do it at scale, right? That's the only thing we're talking about is, is doing it with everybody as opposed to whatever percent of the population, you know, does absentee ballots or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also don't know, I don't know what he's preventing, right? The, the thing that jumps to jumps or comes to mind is, and Bernie talks about this a lot, you know, other countries allow people or they, they make voting days holidays, Right. Um, mm -hmm. So nobody's working so that there's no excuse not to vote. And that's my only thing would be the fact that when when you got to show up to vote, it suppresses the vote for people who can't take time off of work or mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. Um, and or, or just if for people who leaving the house is just a hassle. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's 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 preventing a lot of people from voting. It's preventing a lot of people from voting that you would think stereotypically would not vote for him. Um mm -hmm. But his charge about fraud and stuff, I don't know enough about that. It doesn't I don't I don't know if it's a big problem. I have literally have no idea. It's it seems more that he's using it as a means to, you right. know, get more of his voters. Um, I can't speak to whether it's a real concern at all. I don't know, to to be honest. Yeah. Um so, sorry, did you have another point to make? Uh, all, all I was going to say is that, uh, like, very quickly, from a a crypto perspective, um, so remember when we talked about the blockchain, you can only add things, you can't edit them or erase them, um, and you have to, like, sign, you have to use your, pri your single password. So there's a way to do voting on the blockchain um, so that you guarantee that every every person only gets one vote. Um, mm -hmm. there's something called non-fungible tokens. Um, mm -hmm. we don't have to go too far into this, but so fungibility refers to maybe something like money where, um, if a, do a dollar is fungible in the fact that it's worth a dollar to everybody you give it to, it's not tied to any given person mm -hmm. or any given situation. So you could, you can issue non-fungible tokens that are tied to people. And so if they're non-fungible, it means they can't be spent or used by any other person and they have no value outside of that given person right. so that when you vote, um, there's literally no way to manipulate it. Um, and I, that that's more for the listeners. I guess they want to look into that, but, but that's all right. I think about it, it. It's to solve. If the fraud problem is real, then this is the way to solve it. I just don't know. Do you, I, what do you have to say about from, the fraud thing? From everything I've heard, there's no evidence pointing to, uh, widespread concern for any kind of voter fraud um, with this kind of system. Um, I think it's just a, it's a scare tactic to mm -hmm. get people to, and it's interesting. Another point I've been to, like, I've talked to my friends about this and another point of concern for voting by mail is 
Um, a lot of people feel very strongly, and I don't know what the rules regarding citizenship are for voting, um, but a lot of people's concern um, are very concerned about um, non um, non citizens of the United States. I just find that so strange because the the government knows who citizens are. I don't know where that concern comes from. Uh, well, I, I don't know what the, the mechanism for voting by mail on, like for everyone would look like. Um, uh, but the concern is if if the system, if the mechanic plays out to where it's just they send uh, based on maybe census info. I don't know. They send a certain number of ballots per household, depending on, you know, on maybe on a tax return or on census information, how many adults live in that household. Mm-hmm. And then you fill it out and send it back. Or maybe it's done by vote by registered voters and you just automatically send anyone who's registered a ballot. But I think there's a, there's a, there's this conception. I don't know if it's a misconception, but there's this conception that it's just, oh, well, there's, there, there's two people living in this household. So we're going to send two ballots and there's no way to like, make sure those people are citizens or not. I highly doubt that that would be the way that they do it though. Yeah, I assume, I mean, so the other I thing assume, that- I would assume you'd have to be registered and then they would send you a ballot based on your voter, the voter registry, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the this is probably an oversimplistic way of looking at things because no government computer system works like this, but, but there's a database, and let's say it says all these people are citizens, right? Um, and then you do select all, and, and then you change them to registered, so you can register everybody. And Bernie's talked about the, the fact that needing to register as like a barrier to voting is really ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. But you could do it the opposite direction. Um, So you register people based on citizenship, and then you only mail ballots to those people, and those are the only ones you receive. It doesn't seem that complicated. Mm -hmm. Like you can only receive, like my my dad's not going to get the ballot in the mail. Like it's just not going to happen. Why would, if if you're only sending ballots to citizens, what's the, like, and and the government knows who's a citizen, what, what would the problem be? I have no idea. Yeah, and I don't, I don't get that either. Like you tie it to someone's social security number and send it to them. Yeah, um, I, I just, I don't understand where the concern comes from. Um, do you think people who are not citizens should be allowed to vote? Uh, if, if you were the president and you could make this executive order, would, what, what do you think about that? Because I, I did get into a discussion with some friends of mine about this. Because um, I'm of the mindset that like. I don't think as it stands, I don't think citizen in a perfect world, I don't think citizenship is the best bar or the best metric for judging whether or not someone should contribute to the system that they live in. You know what I mean? I, I just think citizenship is too arbitrary in the form that it exists now. Uh, I mean, I, to- I totally agree with that second statement. Um, it, the fact that you become a citizen by being born here is obvious of that, right? Um, cause that means nothing about what and, you do and the, or, and the process to become a citizen is not, is not, um, is not an equal experience across the board for people. Um, it's not for some people, they luck out and it's a very easy process for them. For some people, it takes a decade for them to get, to gain citizenship. And there's no real, um, and it seems those differences in experience seem arbitrary, uh, and I think that's the biggest problem. If there was some perfectly uniform system where we're like, we know, hey, it takes exactly two years to become a citizen with these certain metrics and requirements. And and everyone has a, you know, once they get here, has an equal shot to do those things. That's different than the current system where it's kind of a crapshoot depending on 
a lot of different factors. And, you know, and I, I think we need to mitigate some of those factors before we start really considering uh, citizenship as like a, a good metric for like what a person's contributions to society are, you know? Yeah. I, so I don't I don't know if I've thought about all of that very much. Right. Um, but the other thing you said I thought is interesting that I definitely haven't thought about, but, um, willing to talk about is the idea of non-citizens voting in the first place. Um, I, I don't, I think I would say that non-citizens shouldn't vote. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I think that opens the door to, because people's immigration statuses, are so varied, right? What's the bar, right? So let's say non-citizens can vote, um, and I'm assuming the obvious example there would be you have to have a green card, um, and then if you have a green card, um, you can vote. And if you have a green card that if you have a green card that's it's basically this the same as being a citizen in the fact that like it's unlimited. You don't have, you don't have to leave. It's permanent. Mm -hmm. um, but what would be the point in doing that? I have no idea. Um, and then maybe you open the door to people with certain visas. I think the point in doing in allowing people who are non-citizens to be able to vote is if your intention is to be in America and to live in an American community for, uh, an, you know, any amount, any reasonable amount of time where like voting decisions are going to matter to you and going to affect the way you um, both contribute to society and are affected by the outcomes of the votes, I think that your voice should be heard in that. Because the reality is, even though people aren't citizens, whether they're uh, you know undocumented citizens or whether they're on a green card or some kind of work visa or a student mm -hmm. visa, is they're going to be here for an amount of time where the the effects of voting matter not only for the effects on them but how they're able to contribute to society and i think it's unfair to welcome people to come to this country and to work and to contribute to the society without allowing them to have some say in what goes on in the society i to me that's a that's a personal opinion you can uh, people can disagree with it but i think it's just unfair to ask them to come and because, uh, you know, they're paying taxes to a certain extent, even if they're not paying an income tax in certain scenarios, like they're contributing to society in a certain way. They're paying sales tax. They're 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 uh, stimulating the economy by selling things and buying things. They're working. They're there's they're contributing labor. There, there's a lot of different factors that um, that I think are at play and to uh, and to invite people and say, we are a country of immigrants. We are a country that takes immigrants and we, we want immigrants to come here. We want people to be here and then to not allow them to have any kind of say in like what goes on voting wise to me, I think is intellectually inconsistent. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just my own personal opinion. Yeah. And uh, well, I think that there are, I think I haven't thought enough about this, so I probably won't say too much, but, um, no problem. But the um, there are also obligations to being mm -hmm. a citizen that co also correlate with the vote, right? So mm -hmm. my dad's never had jury duty. Mm, um, he, if there was a draft, he wouldn't be drafted. Right. Um, so seemingly, it's not just a privilege; it's also an obligation. Um, I'm not True. saying that that I'm not really making a point with that, other than to, to say that. Um, you sort of it's almost a give and take with earning your right to vote because there are certain mm -hmm. things that you're not obligated to as a non-citizen um 
in, in historically in, in Muslim communities, this doesn't really exist so much anymore. But like, if we think about the caliphates from like the medieval era, um, their Christians and Jews were allowed to, um, live in Muslim communities and, um, were literally governed by a separate set of laws. Um, and they had to pay a tax, um, that was mm-hmm. bigger than what Muslims had to pay. Um, but they also didn't have to fight in the army. Um, there was like a very like give and take aspect to it. Um, and I'm not saying that that's Mm -hmm. like a perfect example of it, but, um, but I'm just highlighting the fact that there could be positives and negatives about, um, both of those. Um, I, I totally hear what you're saying in terms of the fact that you are participating in society and the things that you're doing are, um, or the things that the government chooses to do are going to affect you. Um, Mm -hmm. I tend to be, uh, more conservative about things like citizenship or immigration mm-hmm. um, than I otherwise would be with most of my other views. And I think I'm not really sure where that comes from other than uh, maybe it's a, st- a statistic, but um, so much of my, f- my family is um, are immigrants like immediately, um, right. like are dual citizens of other countries. And I don't just mean my immediate family, but my half of my wife's family is from England. Um, and so I, I tend to look at the immigration thing, I'd say differently than your, than I guess your stereotypical, um, white guy, because it's not like you can just like look at my family, like, Oh, we've always been American. I think immigration is a crapshoot in terms of the way you were portraying it. Like the experiences of immigration are huge, uh, are Mm -hmm. are very varied. But I think if you have a green card, I think becoming a citizen is actually fairly straightforward. Um, I don't know that as a fact, but I think if you have a green card, it is. Um, but, uh, the, in terms of non-citizens voting, I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting. I have to think about it more, um, but I just don't know where you draw the line, right? Do we mm-hmm. do we allow um, just anybody that's like let's just say we draw the line at legally, right? You're here legally, um, mm-hmm. but do we allow students, right? Like, do we allow people that are here for a year? You know, like what is the, is there, is there a line or does a line matter? I have no idea. I think those are interesting questions for sure. Yeah. Because, I think, if you, I think well, there so, could, sorry, sorry, one more point. Um, mm-hmm. I just realized this is the end of what I was saying, but so, but people that vote, so I, I hear what you're saying about it's going to affect you, right? So you should participate in it. Mm-hmm. But what if you, you know, what if you're here on like a two year H1B visa or whatever, um, that's contingent on your employment and you're able to vote for the president, right? And the president's here for four years. Mm-hmm. Um, or you vote on policies that actually change things past when you would actually even be here. Maybe that's interesting to think about. I don't know. Yeah, I think um, I think for non-citizens, so for people who weren't born here, um, there could be some kind of uh, because I think voting should be a right for like a. I don't think you should have to do anything to become uh, to have the right to vote if you're a citizen of the United States whether you're born here or became a citizen I right. think that should just be a right you have I think I think and it should who are be non- easy and you right, should get the day off very <laughs> easy. yes you yeah. should get the day off uh and honestly I think we should be able to it's crazy that in 2020 we can't vote like by mail I mean we can vote by mail but I think it's crazy that we can't vote online or from some kind of app or something but yeah. anyway um we do everything else with the federal government but literally everything else uh online yeah. but um I think that non-citizens should have the opportunity to vote, not necessarily the right. I think 
um, the opportunity could come with some kind of application process where like the same way you have to apply for a visa, maybe you can apply for a voter, like a voter card or something like that, where like you have to, and it's not necessarily, um, it's not merit based. I don't think it should be like based on, well, how many, you know, what, you know, how, how much do you know about America or anything like that? I think it should be, um, based on, your situation and like your plans, basically what you've, why you're here, what you've been doing and what your plans are for the future. So like, if you're here for a two year school visa, then you would be disqualified because, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think there's something ethically weird about voting for something you're not going to be here to see the ramifications of yeah, um, yeah. necessarily, but, but I think you should treat everybody like an individual. So if I go to apply, if I've been in the United States working on a work visa or a student visa that I'm planning to, to, um, to re up or to do another year program. And like, I can prove that somehow, or if like I'm here, you know, on a green card or something like that and, uh, uh, whatever. And I have, you know, a place of residence and, and no reason to believe that I'm going to be leaving, uh, anytime soon, then I think you should be able to apply for the opportunity to vote in elections that are going to, you know, affect your livelihood and affect the way that you live. I, I, I just can't see the downside of that. Um, I don't think it should just be like, well, if you're here, you can vote because yeah, I mean, I think there are some like rational concerns about like, you know, people, you know, coming from other countries just to vote and then leaving. I think you should have to be able to have a proven sort of empirical slew of evidence that you know any reasonable person would be like yeah okay this person is here for this reason they live here they you know they have this kind of job and you know any like the way you have to apply for anything i mean like literally like something as you know as string uh, you know similar to like applying for unemployment or applying for anything like that like it's a, it's a reasonable amount of application uh and honestly for the amount of <laughs> for as easy as it is to apply for unemployment like i you know Come on. Like, I think we should we should have some kind of application process for like, you know, if you're going to be here, even though if you're not a citizen, you know, you're not a citizen, you weren't born here or like you haven't completed the citizenship process or whatever. If you're going to be here for for your foreseeable future, I think you should have the opportunity to to be able to have a say in what you're doing. I don't know. Maybe I'm yeah. just uh, maybe I'm just naive and optimistic, but. I don't know. I'd have to think about it a lot more, but yeah. it's certainly we worth thinking should about. Be, I think we definitely should be voting electronically, though. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to me um, that we st- we still have to go to a place, fill out pen on a paper. It like to me, it just it's crazy. Like <laughs> we do everything on our phones and on the internet now. There's to me, there's no there's no reason we shouldn't be doing that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It just it just seems crazy to me. Completely agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Um, did you have uh, anything else you want to touch on for this week? No. I. I mean, I. Th- I, th- I think we we covered all the controversial and non-controversial things. So <laughs> yeah, that's we, good. We, we we covered both things everyone cares about and things that no one cares about. <laughs> so <laughs> it's always a great podcast. Uh, thank you, Drew. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where can people find your work on the internet? Um, philosophically or otherwise yeah the the only thing you can find for me is uh my website for building websites and that's betterbuild.io but i gotta take that up with brandon before i I drop that again so that's it (laughs) i do have a cryptocurrency app that i had never mentioned on the crypto thing that i should have mentioned you built you built a cryptocurrency app yeah it's for tracking transactions it's called crypt firm like crypto confirm 
Yeah. Um, and uh, it's in the App Store for Apple. It's not on Android, but it uh, allows you to get push notifications for um, Bitcoin and Tether transactions. But well, well, there yeah. you go. All right, and to, and to be fair to Brandon, I'll plug his web design company. Yep. It's called Backline Creative. If you need any websites, you <laughs> can go to Backline Creative or what was yours again? Uh, just go to Brandon. It's his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure That's Brandon, only fair. I'm sure Brandon does not mind. And if Brandon can't, if Brandon can't help you, he'll send you to Drew. Perfect. Um, thank you, Drew. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, you can find me at Asan the DJ on social media. That's at A H S O H N the DJ. Uh, and you can find more episodes of this podcast at Weekly Regular on social media or at WeeklyRegular.com. Thank you to Philosophy Drew. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.